Heavenly Father, we praise you for this glorious mystery. It truly is a wonder that your Son, the Son of God, would come and take on human flesh and be born as a little baby. And that little baby would not be treated as the king of kings that he is, but is treated as a slave, a criminal, scorned and mocked, laughed at, beaten, betrayed and crucified on the cross for sinners like us so that we who believe in him might be treated as those clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, truly a mystery that you would do so for us. We can only praise you for your grace, your mercy, and your sovereignty in bringing sinners to salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel that we have come to know and believe in your Son. We pray that you increase in us the knowledge of this truth, the conviction of these truths, especially as this season uh, of Christmas uh, begins to increase. May you give us many opportunities, open doors, to tell others about this gift of mercy, this gift of grace that you have given to us in your Son. We ask that you would do a work in our hearts as we open up your book now. Fill us with your Spirit. May your Spirit be our teacher. May your Spirit bring forth words from your book that would encourage and build up this body, your church, and minister to every individual here, allowing them to hear exactly what they need to hear from you, Lord, today. God, we pray that you would be glorified in all of this endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. And if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews once again. And we will be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. Well, um... As we look around our world today, and uh, uh, one of the things that we find, there are many things that are common. One of those common sights that we see in our world are what, I, what we call warning signs, warning signs, right? They're uh, not signs of the end of the world or things like that, but warning signs that warn us of dangers. And uh, if you think of signs, you see them everywhere. You probably see them, saw a bunch today as you came in. But sometimes the signs that we see are, are self-explanatory, right? Uh, danger, keep hands clear, moving machinery. Why? Why? Well, you can kind of just picture that. Uh, sometimes uh, they are more explicit in their instructions. We might see this in our garage. Um, you have to read into the fine details. Unauthorized vehicles will be towed away at vehicle owner's expense. Uh, and towing is enforced at all times. Um, at times, warning signs can be downright scary or shocking. I like this one. Danger. Do not feed or molest. Gators cannot be tamed, and feeding them can result in them mistaking a hand for a handout. Florida law prohibits the feeding or molesting of alligators. Uh, 
That's scary. Um, but you've heard enough stories about that. And of course, there's sometimes some warning signs are humorous, like this one. Uh, Don't touch my tools. It's not worth your life. Uh, some of you mechanics out there probably have that kind of sideline around somewhere. Anyways, those are signs, warning signs that we see. But of course, uh, all these warning signs are, they serve a very common purpose. They all exist for a purpose that, to warn the reader of the sign of, a, of a danger that they need to watch out for, as well as to encourage a specific type of conduct, right? Well, the same could be said of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews, and we've seen and come across a couple of warning signs, warning passages already. Well, today we come to another one. For in these warning passages of Hebrews, they serve to warn the reader of the danger of falling away from Christ and also encourage the believer towards faithfulness to Jesus Christ. As you know, the letter of Hebrews was uh, written to professing Christians of Jewish descent who are facing increasing persecution in, uh, in, and the temptation to fall away from Jesus back to the relative safety of Judaism. The author explains much from Old Testament scripture how Jesus is better than all the Old Testament, Old Covenant practices and rituals that they had once been partakers of. But as well, and as he's been explaining such from the Old Testament, interspersed throughout these explanations of the superiority of Christ are these exhortations or warnings, warning passages, warning signs to his readers to not fall away. Do not fall away. Warning. Today's passage that we're going to cover this morning is the fourth of five warning passages in Hebrews. We've already looked at chapter 2, verse 1 and following, chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 6, verse 4, chapter 10, verse 26 is our fourth, and we'll see one last one when we hit chapter 12, verse 15. But beginning with chapter 10, verse 19, which we looked at just a a little while ago, the author is now concluding his letter uh, with practical exhortations to his readers. Really, it's, it's, uh, uh, he's explained the superiority of Christ for a reason, and that he wants us to love, seek the, how Christ is so much better that we would hold on to him, that we would not fall away, that we remain faithful to him, that we would hold on to our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Since and we have such a great high priest, we, are incur- we were encouraged in chapter 10, verse 19, to draw ne- three things, to draw near to God, to hold fast to our hope, and thirdly, to encourage one another. And those are the three things we encourage today to do. In today's passage, we see the kind of continuation of it. We will observe the motivations to faithfulness in Christ. We see motivations to faithfulness in Christ. We see, uh, <clears throat> I will explain four, uh, and gives various reasons, three motivations, for instance, fact, to not throw away your faith in Christ. Okay, right, So three motivations to not throw away your faith in Christ. And this, hopefully uh, this passage will encourage you to, uh, in those moments when you're tempted to walk away or fall away or, uh, or to shrink back from Christ, then you will be encouraged to not because of these motivations. And first that we find in our passage this morning, that we look at, we'll read the text within the sermon, is the motivation of future judgment. Future judgment, verses 26 through 31. Let's read the text. The author of Hebrews writes, For if we go on sinning willfully 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the author now turns to the warning his reader, readers of the dangers of falling away. Why should, what is the motivation to, uh, to draw near, hold fast, encourage one another? Because there's a danger of falling away. That's why you shouldn't feed the alligators, because the danger, you're going to lose your hand. And here, there's a danger when you fall away of future judgment, and the future judgment of God. Verse 26 warns against this danger. It's called the danger of going on, sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That's the, that's the dangerous activity that's being warned against. First of all, this phrase, knowledge of truth, we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this phrase, to coming, having received the knowledge of the truth, is another way of saying to believe. To, when you believed in the gospel, you came to the knowledge of the truth, the truth that you are a sinner, that God is our, a holy God, that we are under his judgment that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave and offers salvation to all who would put their trust in him. And that's the gospel truth. We came to that knowledge of the truth when we were saved. But there's a danger after having received the knowledge of truth of going on sinning willfully. To sin willfully describes basically ongoing sin that is a continu- or continual sin that is uh, volitional. That is, that it's an act of the will that you will to do so. You intend to do so. You deliberately do so. And some people, when they read this, come across and think at first that oh, means any, any sin. But I think when we look at the context of this passage, we consider the whole context of the passage. It it would limit this particular sinning willfully, particularly to the sin of deliberately turning away from or rejecting Christ. For we know in sins like pride or hatred or lust, some of those many common ongoing sins that men and women struggle with, we know that there can be forgiveness in those areas where you confess sin to your Lord. But the sin of willfully knowing, having believed in the gospel, trust in the gospel, trusting in Christ, and then willfully considering Jesus and turning away from him, abandoning him, forsaking him is a sin that is a serious danger. There's an, there's a, by the way, there's an allusion here to the da- this, this phrase of sinning willfully from Numbers chapter 15 in the law. Numbers 15, 30, I'll read for you. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, 
That one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people. So a person who defiantly turns away from Christ, knowingly turns away from Christ, after having come to receive the knowledge of the truth, will face a similar fate as in the law. They will be cut off and bound for destruction by God. Because why? The text tells us, for there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you willfully turn away from Christ after having believed in Jesus Christ, then you are basically, essentially, you're saying, I understand very clearly that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I put my trust in him. I I profess faith in that. But now, for whatever reason in my life, I reject that gift. I reject Christ. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus any longer. That is this high-handed, defiant, deliberate, willful sin against God. You are rejecting, basically, Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross for you. And in the case of these Jewish background believers, they were turning away from the sacrifice of Christ. Back to what? Back to the sacrifices of animals, the blood of bulls and goats. But not only, not only the sacrifice of Christ is not, would not be availed, be availed to them any longer, but neither would there be any effect, if effectiveness of the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats. So in effect, this, these people who sin in this way would have no more sacrifices for their sins. There's, there's no payment for their sins. They are dead before God in their sins. There's no hope. There will be no forgiveness of sins for the one who turns away from faith in Christ. You know, and I, I, this is a serious thing, and we want to, want to understand this is what it's saying. You get the sense of the full effect of this. This is not in a moment of weakness and being overwhelmed and running away from the Lord in weakness and because, oh, this is too hard. I, I can't bear it anymore. Oh, Lord, I, I just, you know, it's, it's not that, but it's a willful rejection of Christ. It's not the unbeliever who doesn't understand the gospel, and so, oh, yeah, I don't really believe in it. Oh, they never believed it anyways. There's still hope for them. It's the professing believer, the believer, just say believer, okay? All of us here would profess believers. None of us can see each other's heart, but we all know we, are, we call ourselves believers because we profess, we say we believe in Jesus Christ. But a believer who knows the gospel, who's been taught the gospel, who rejects Christ, rejects the sacrifice of Christ, and there's no more sacrifice for your sins. And this outcome produces a terrifying effect. It is a terrifying expectation of judgment. For that person, there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Even though they willfully have rejected the gospel, they, have, they also have rejected that there's judgment, right? They, they don't believe there's sacrifice, or they don't need the sacrifice, but they believe that, that they also have rejected that there's a judgment. And they know in the back of their minds that there's going to be a payment. There's this expectation of judgment. Just as it's sometimes where there's a terrifying expectation of death, there's a terrifying expectation of judgment that these will experience. 
This is a terror thing, something of great fear. This is, a, in, a, in, a, in other words, scarier than all the other terror movies put to, all the other terror movies put together, right? Horror movies. This is, and what is so terrifying? Well, it's the future final judgment of God. The author quotes here from Isaiah 26 line, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's from Isaiah 26, 11. And it describes God's judgment as a fury of a fire. It's a fire that burns. It consumes the adversaries. See, those who reject Christ's sacrifice for sins, we, we understand after having coming to understand the gospel, will be cast into hell and eventually the lake of fire where they will burn under the wrath of God forever with no escape. Meditate on that. I know we, we as Christians, we, we tend to think of, oh, I got, I got Jesus, so I'm going to be in heaven. But it seems that there is a wonderful reminder here, one terrifying reminder here. It's not wonderful, it's terrifying. A terrifying reminder to think about the reality of hell, for that it serves as a warning to you and me to not fall away and turn away from Christ. To emphasize the severity of this judgment in verse 28 to 29, the author argues, makes an argument from lesser to greater. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says in verse 28, if setting aside the law of Moses leads to the penalty of death for the Israelite, and that's if they set aside the law, they would be penalized with death based on two or three witnesses. Then if that's what would happen when you disobeyed the, rejected the law, set aside the law, how much more is the punishment going to be? How much severe or more severe will it be for the one who sets aside the gospel of Christ? This is... Not just something that they've, you know, like a, a, a simply a, just a bad choice, you know, a, mis- a mistake. It's not just a, a, oh, you like chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry, you know, it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's not even just like choosing to no, it's just to no longer believe here. It is a serious choice to reject Christ. And verse 29 describes, this is what you're doing when you turn away from Christ, You are one, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has, number one, trampled underfoot the Son of God? When we say that we no longer need Christ, when we reject the faith in Christ after having come to believe in Jesus, the gospel, we are consciously trampling underfoot the Son of God. I came in yesterday from the garden. My my feet were covered with mud because I was digging around. It's like I took my dirty feet and I trampled on Jesus, the Son of God. What audacity to do that, right? But that is what the Scripture says we are doing if we turn away from Christ. Secondly, in this verse 29, it tells us that it is to do so, to turn away from Christ is to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant. This is, we're talking about the new covenant. The blood of Jesus is the, that which ratifies the new covenant. It's holy, his blood is holy, it's the blood of the Holy Son of God that shed for our sins. It brings about the, the promise of new life, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, um, the new restored relation with God, all these things. And we're saying, no, that stuff, that new covenant, oh, it's, it's just unclean things. 
It's defiled things. It's profane things. It's common. It's, it's nothing special. To treat the blood of Jesus as nothing special? God, when God sent his son, he sacrificed the greatest gift he could give. And we treat it as if it's common. If you, someone gave you a gift this Christmas, and right before them, you just said, mm, mm, you threw it aside. Oh, that would be insult the person who gave you that gift, right? How much more when we do that towards the gift of God's son to the father? Thirdly, Restoring Night describes you, not only you are trampled under the foot of the son of God, you regard unclean the blood of the covenant, but also you've insulted the spirit of grace. You insult the Holy Spirit, really. The spirit who brings about grace in our lives, the grace of regeneration, the grace of, of enlightening our eyes, who has come out as a spirit given to us out of completely unmerited favor because nothing we've done, God freely gives us his spirit. And this is so profound because in the Old Testament, only, only special people would get the spirit of God, right? For special occasions. But Jesus Christ died for us so that he could have the spirit of God dwell within you and me, freely enabling us to, to live and walk in righteousness and we insult the spirit of grace when we reject and turn away from Christ. Can you see? When we turn away, when we sin willfully, rejecting Jesus Christ after receiving the knowledge of truth, we are insulting God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, in these ways. And can we not see and understand that such rejection deserves God's wrath And believe you me, God will pour out his wrath. The author quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 35 through 36, that God will seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, he says. And God will judge sinners, especially God will judge the apostate. And it will be a terrifying judgment. It will be burning fire, torment, darkness, And the worst of all, there is no escape, eternal judgment. Truly, as we end in verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, you you want to reject, you know, if you're a Muslim, you reject Islam. You're Buddhist, you reject Buddha. You are a, a, you know, some other faith, and you reject your, your religion, your God. You know, there, there is no eternal penalty for that. Because those gods, those idols, are dead gods. They're not real. But our God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, he is the living God. And rejection of him brings cons- real consequences, especially for those who reject him after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Brothers and sisters, if you have received the knowledge of the truth, then turning away from Christ, it's, it's not just a, a something, it's a, just changing your religion. It's not just oh, growing out of the need for Christ. It is a willful rejection and trampling of Jesus, the Son of God. And you better believe that his Father will avenge. His Father will judge you for it. 
So let us not, when tempted, forsake Christ, but rather, when tempted, hold fast to Christ. See, the motivation of future judgment, if we take time to meditate on it and do not neglect it or forget it, encourages us to faithfulness in Christ. That's motivation number one. Secondly, we are encouraged to faithfulness in Christ through the motivation of past faithfulness. Past faithfulness. In verse 32 to 34, we read along in the scriptures. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. You endured, oh, partly by being made, a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The readers here are now exhorted to remember something, to put in mind something that they had happened in the past. They remember and to recall, what are they to remember and recall? They remember the former days, days in the past, days that have happened in the past. And these particular former days are when after being enlightened. Again, this phrase, after being enlightened, it's consistent. If, we're, if we consider what it means, it's consistent with its use back in chapter 6, verse 4. And where, again, there it referred to having come to knowledge of being saved. After coming to the knowledge of the truth and believing upon Christ is, is, after, is what it means to be enlightened. It was then that the recipients of Hebrews had undergone something terrible. And they had undergone a, a great conflict of sufferings, according to verse 32. But most significantly, they not only went through a great conflict of sufferings, but they are to remember that they endured a great conflict of sufferings. It's easy to remember the trials. We all remember those trials that you've gone through in life. But go the next step and remember, when you went through those trials, how you endured, how God helped you to endure. That faithfulness to the Lord in the midst of trials. Because you know, if you remember back those times when you're struggling in with, with, in a, in your, with relationship or maybe in singleness, when you're wrestling with, with not having kids, with not being able to find a spouse, when you when wrestling with didn't have a job, couldn't find a job, and maybe you're, some, you're wrestling even now, but when you went through those trials and so many others, health issues, financial troubles, marital difficulties, you name it, okay? When you went through those times, and as you walk with the Lord, you endured through those. God wants you to remember those times, how you endured a great conflict of sufferings. They remain to endure is to remain is a word that means to remain under something. As it's like a picture of that's it's a weight or it's a pressure. And what happens when we feel weight or pressure? We usually try to. Cast it aside. That's normal, right? We just throw it aside. I don't know why, why do I carry this weight? Let me throw it aside. But the scriptures has this idea of endure it. Bear under it. Continue to lift it up. They, and so these believers remain under the pressure of, particularly of suffering. And this suffering, it was suffering for their faith. They were being persecuted. 
It describes for us how they were, various ways in which they were suffered. They suffered public reproaches. They were a a public spectacle through reproaches, tribulations. So they publicly were persecuted by, most likely since it's publicly, it was not, it probably wasn't just their neighbor, but it was probably a a government thing. And I believe it was the government. It was probably the the Roman government specifically. They also suffered because of, partly also by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So even if they weren't being mistreated, they were persecuted because they supported those who were being persecuted. They were kind of said, well, hey, if you're helping these people, you must also be with them. You must be one of them. We're going to also persecute you. By showing the support, it somehow, of these imprisoned believers, it somehow led to, resulted in the seizure of their own property, according to verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. See, Christians, when, when you go through the trials, and when fellow believers go through the trials, it should, we should respond with sympathy. That's why there's the importance of treating those who are in prison for their, because of their faith. And what happens is that they, because of the, the persecution that was torn, pushed upon them, they accepted joyfully the seizure of their own property. That they, in this conflict, in this persecution, they lost their property as well. Now, we don't know exactly what this property was, we, but we can imagine scenario, various scenarios of how that might have happened. It's not uncommon. Even in our day, we can see that happening to believers. Uh, when they are persecuted, they lose. Not only, you know, the people aren't just treating them with scorn or, you know, or mocking them, but sometimes they're also affecting their livelihood. They're taking their things. They're making it difficult for them. They can't buy homes. They can't only live in certain places. And even when they leave the country, they say, no, you can't take that stuff with you. We will take it. These believers in the past, when they came to Christ, had endured a persecution for their faith. I believe this is most likely, and many scholars believe this is most likely happened during the reign of Roman Emperor Claudius in AD 49. And there's a famous historian named Suetonius, a Roman historian, who writes... This there were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation at the instigation of Crestus. As a result, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And uh, those talks about Jews there, uh, the Christians at that time were considered a sect of Judaism. And it seems that because of this Crestus, maybe a, a mispronunciation of Christ, uh, there was these Jewish saints, particularly Jewish believers, were expelled from Rome. And when they expelled from Rome, they probably had to leave right away. They probably couldn't sell their homes, didn't have time to get rid of their stuff. They lost their possessions. But in the end, they, they didn't just lose them to prisoners. They willingly gave them up in their support and their sympathy towards other prisoners. Why? I love this. This is a very valuable, uh, principle, this valuable phrase here. Knowing, verse 20, 34, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Wow. What would, what would comfort you so that in, the, in helping other prisoners and persecuted Christians to be willing to lose and give up all your possessions, to lose your home, to lose your car, to lose your, your 401k, your IRA, your, your 403b, your retirement fund, all the possessions that we have, what, what would lead you to be willing to do that for the, other, the sake of other Christians? Because... You, have a, you know that you have a better possession, a less possession that is a lasting one. What is that? 
If you don't know what that is, boy, I've got news for you. Well, you, brothers, sisters, you know what this lasting treasure is, right? In your mind right now, can you say that this treasure, the treasure of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and the, being, the hope of being in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ, is a great treasure than all the possessions of this earth and one that lasts forever. Can you say that that is the better possession? Because when you understand that that is the better possession, then you're willing to lose these things. Because these things, well, they're, just, they're really just earthly things. They're just dust. We are dust, trying to hold on to dust, but we will perish and so will these things, but not the treasures in heaven. This is a, these are convictions that believers take when they take to heed Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in to steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The world can take away your earthly treasures, but they cannot take away your heavenly treasure. And those are eternal. For what you have with Christ in heaven is greater than anything you might have without him here on earth. Remember that. As you may go through trials and lose things, the wealthiest people of our world can buy homes, health, cars, vacations, but they cannot buy eternal life. They too are like everyone else, like you and me, appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And so therefore, what will us, what, how, how shall we escape this judgment? Only one way, to hold fast to Jesus Christ, holding on to him dearly as the only means of our salvation. The recipients of Hebrews understood this. They had faithfully endured their persecutions in the past by holding fast to Christ. And now the author of Hebrews exhorts them to remember how they endured through their, in those trials by holding fast to Christ. And that past faithfulness to be a motivation to continued faithfulness and endurance in the present. And brothers and sisters, that is the key for you to endure in the present by remembering your endurance and past in the past. Endurance that, of course, is produced by God. For endurance and past trials strengthen the believers to endure in present trials. We know from James that God allows trials in our lives, and though they are difficult, it is the testing of our faith that produces what? Endurance. You do not learn endurance unless it's tested. You do not learn to do harder things by doing soft things. You learn to do harder things, endure harder things by enduring hard things. You live this life, you will endure hard things because of the curse of sin, brothers and sisters. And I look around this room and I, I see some of you have endured hard things. That will help you to endure harder things in this cursed fallen world as you hold on to Christ. Everything in the past prepares us to face our future. And the motivation of past faithfulness encourages us to faithfulness in Christ. 
Thirdly, we are motivated towards faithfulness in Christ by future reward. By future reward. Verse 35 to 39, we read this in the text. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, for he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Here the instruction, the concluding kind of exhortation is, therefore, don't throw away your confidence in Christ. That word confidence goes back to uh, verse 19 of the, early in the chapter. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have this confidence to enter into God's presence because of Jesus. That's the confidence, through faith in him. Since you have this confidence, therefore, don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence in Christ. And your confidence has a great reward. Faith in Christ has a great reward, yes. It's not just a blessing in the present, but it's a blessing for the future. There's a reward to come, that, to come for those who hold fast to their faith in Jesus Christ. That reward is ultimately eternal life with Christ. In the meantime, to attain the reward that is promised by God, the instruction here is to endure. Endure in faith under the trials that you face. Endurance in the midst of trials is the will of God. It's the means of God which which he makes us more like Jesus Christ. It is part of his plan for our lives. Later on in chapter Hebrews 12.1, we see this further emphasis on endurance. When Paul, the Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There, when we get to it, we're going to see that the Christian life is like a marathon race. And in this marathon race, there's a reward for all who complete the race. But you get this reward only when you cross the finish line. If you cannot call it quits at mile one, mile 13, or even mile 26. Because if you do, you don't get the prize. You must endure to the end. You must run in with endurance this race and go to arrive at the end for the reward. The reward awaits us upon our death, upon the end of this life, when we enter into God's presence. And what we see here is that this is endurance. And what this is saying is not that this is what you have to do to work for your salvation. But what it's teaching us is this, this, a definition, really, a, a description of what kind of, what is genuine faith. For genuine saving faith is a faith that endures. It's a faith that holds on to Christ. Yes, there will be times when we fall away, maybe backslide a little bit, but there are, we are not going to ever be one who outwardly rejects Christ. Even if you've backslid, those of you that have been there, right? Some of you guys have been there. You fell away from Christ. Did you not feel the conviction 
I remember for a season I stopped going to church as a young Christian. I felt guilty every week. I said, I hope I don't bump into any Christians from church because I know they're going to ask me. I feel guilty about not being with God's people. And that's by design. Because we know that that, you can, that faith that saves, the faith that endures, and even though we know that, that we ought to be, we ought to return to Christ. And thank God that God brings back those who follow it, even those who temporarily in weakness turned away from him. I love what Hebrews eleven six says about faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Part of faith is that we're going to believe in the reward, that God rewards, that God keeps his promise. And part of that, and then we've, we looked at that in the previous sermons. Well, as the encouragement, final encouragement to the readers, the author concludes in our text with a, with a quote, a quote from uh, Habakkuk, the minor prophet, a uh, quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, and verse 37, 38. Now, you may know or may not know, because Habakkuk is a pretty obscure, kind of obscure book, but it's one of the more well-known of, or more quoted of the minor prophets. But Habakkuk is this uh, short little prophecy of God's intention to use Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, the evil Babylonian Empire, to judge Judah. And when Habakkuk, the prophet, he'd be able to say, what? Why do you use evil? Why do you question God's justice in using evil in Babylon? The Lord replied with another prophecy that Babylon would also be judged. And that's in Hebrews chapter and Habakkuk chapter 2, excuse me. And Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 reminds the readers that God will keep his promise to bring about his promises. He will. Just as he promised to bring Babylon to bring to judge Judah, he will promise to bring another nation to meet the Persians and the Medes to bring about the destruction of Babylon. And then Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, verse thirty-eight, or verse thirty-eight of our text reminds the reader that, but those though God will bring about these purposes, even using more wicked nations to bring about His plans. Those who are the just, those who are declared right before God, are going to be people who will live by faith. The just shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. The courage for the Hebrew recipients, then, is that God will keep his promise, and until it comes to pass, his people must live by faith. The person who doesn't live by faith in God but shrinks back from the Lord, does not please the Lord, and will face God's judgment. See, we must be people who walk by faith. That's, what we, that's why we endure, right? Every trial causes us to t- test our faith in the Lord, and we must live by faith. Just as we come to be saved by faith, that initial justification, that must continue all throughout our life, that we must, will continue to live by faith. Practically, faith results, leads to faithfulness in life and faithfulness towards Christ. Now to this point, I know this, I've, I hopefully have explained uh, the text adequately for you, that you understand that, uh, what this text is saying, but it's still possible that someone who reads this text might, might misunderstand to think that it's possible that a, a believer in Jesus Christ could somehow lose their salvation. 
right? That's, that's the difficulty, the challenge of these Hebrew warning passages. But let me just remind you again with the words of some dear people to us. Let me remind you of the words of Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the words of Peter. You who, we who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're protected by the power of God. In Philippians, Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. No matter what you do, Christ, God will bring about the completion of his work in you and me. And Jesus says he would not cast out a single one of us. And Peter says, for Peter reminds us that we are protected by God. All these texts emphasize the, the, the security of our salvation in Christ. And so with that, just understanding that we teach and believe in eternal, the doctrine of eternal security, then when we come to this passage, we must nevertheless understand it for the warning that it is. For this warning passage is genuinely addressed to believers. Even back in the earlier warning passage, Paul, why do I keep saying Paul? The author of Hebrews um, would include himself. He'd say, we, us, as if these warnings were also to him. To the, as a, and we can assume the author was a genuine believer because these passages serve as a warning of dangers who those who failed to endure and encourages them to draw near to Christ and not shrink back. To hold fast to our hope in Christ and to not throw him away. These, warn, these warning passages, just as we believe that eternal, our sanctification is guaranteed by the pro- promise of God, God uses means to bring about, our salvation, bring about our sanctification, does he not? He uses the scriptures when we read the Bible. He uses prayer when we pray. He uses believers when we gather together as the means by which we are sanctified, right? So God also uses warnings as a means to help us to hold fast to Jesus Christ, to hold on to our faith in him. Just as you have no desire, I imagine, to stick your finger in machinery or your hand in a gator or have your car towed, So God's warning of judgment serves to encourage genuine believers to continue following Christ because we do not want what the the danger of these warning signs imply. We do not want the terrifying judgment of a holy God. And so we hold fast to Christ because of now the future judgment that is to come, but we also hold fast because of past faithfulness that God enabled us to endure and we hold on because of the future reward that awaits at the end of this race to all who run faithfully. Let me wrap, with, wrap up with three questions for us to meditate during the week. How does future judgment serve as a warning in your life? Do you, do you think about future judgment much? How does that serve as a warning in your life? Secondly, can you think of past faithfulness that encouraged you in the present? Think about in the past. Hopefully, the longer you live your life, the more examples you probably have. And then thirdly, how does future reward in Christ motivate your life to faithfulness? And these are things you can meditate on, think about this week. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. 
Thank you, Lord, for this promise of eternal life, of access into your very presence through the one who sits at your right hand even now, our Lord and your Son. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. Praise you, Father, for this, the, this access that right now is in spiritual access, but one day will be a true presence, real access into your throne, physically even, bodily, when we receive glorified bodies. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to take the heed, the, the warning of our passage, that we remember the dangers of falling away, of really throwing away our confidence in Christ. Instead, let us hold fast to it, hold tightly to it. Lord, help these, our, our congregation, this congregation, your people. Help particularly the individuals who are going through enduring trials right now. And though it is a test to their faith, we pray that they would, that it would have its perfect result, that it would lead them to endure under it, to remain under it, and to learn to trust you in it so that they will come to become complete in Christ. Lord, we pray that, that you would, in the times, bring us to, to remember the past trials that we've gone through when you, when you were with us, when your rod and your staff, they comforted us, when you protected us, and when we learned to trust in you in those times and help us to continue to trust in you for the future. Lord, we look forward to the day when Christ will return, will bring about the, all the fulfillment of every single promise in Christ, and you bring about the completion of your plans to save a people for your name. And God, we praise you and thank you that we who profess faith in Jesus Christ now can be a part of that people, your people. Help us to endure in Christ, we pray, that we would learn to love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.